Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Good morning. morning. All right. I have a two-point sermon today, but don't get excited because we have a lot of stuff in these two points. Uh, Some of you weren't here last week. We got a lot of folks gone today, but hopefully people will... will, uh, listen to the sermon online because we're, this is very related. Last week's sermon and today's sermon are very related to what we talked about in that nine-week class, that special class we had on gender roles in the church, and our congregational meeting tonight uh, will, of course, address those kinds of things as well. So I'm trying to give some, some biblical and theological uh, framework for such uh, a discussion that we've been having here in this church. Well, previously, on Fuquay Verena Church of Christ, we started looking at, at uh, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. If you were here last week, I know a lot of our women were away at the beach in a, in a women's retreat, so a lot of you didn't hear this. Others may not have been here. And by the way, we're really happy to have you here if you're visiting with us. Uh, but this is what we talked about. This is the slide, the main slide, title slide from last week's sermon, which we called The Greatest of These is Love, a statement straight out of 1 Corinthians 13. And of course, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the richest descriptions of love in all the Bible. Uh, And love, as Matt said earlier, is our 2019 theme. We love uh, the way and and because of the way God has loved us. So last week we saw that at at bottom, at the root level. Love is about elevating others and their interests above ourselves and our own interests. Uh, To to use a a statement straight out of the description of love in uh, chapter 13, verse 5, Paul says love is something that, fundamentally does not insist on its own way. Love's about seeking the other person's welfare, putting their interests ahead of your own. That's kind of the essence of love. And if you remember, we went back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians to sort of get a a, a Pauline uh, understanding of what he's talking about when he talks about love. And we saw that rather than self-assertion and grasping for power, biblical love is about self-sacrifice and actually giving up power. It's epitomized, after all, in the cross, right? That's the epitome of love. That's the ultimate expression or manifestation or picture of love. And the cross upended uh, the world's hierarchy. It it turns what looks like weakness and foolishness upside down. And that that turns out to be actually the power and wisdom of God. And what looks like power and, and wisdom from an earthly standpoint, from a human standpoint, turns out to be foolishness and weakness, 
So the cross symbolizes how something so weak and apparently foolish could become the essence of God's power and wisdom. And that means that cross-shaped love, or as we put it last week, cruciform love, is what Paul means when Paul's talking about love. Not only in 1 Corinthians, but anywhere Paul uses that word. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20. And all over the Philippians 2, have this mind in you which was in Christ, who, though he was God, emptied himself by dying on a cross ultimately. And that's a model for us. So that's what Paul means when Paul talks about love. And this is exactly what the Corinthians had obeyed. This is the gospel to which they had responded when, first, when Paul first brought it there. So he reminds them of this in the first couple of chapters, in the early uh, parts of this letter. So in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is the thing I preached to you. It, it's folly to those who are perishing, to non-Christians, to pagans. It, it's folly. That's, who would, what God dies on a cross? The cross means defeat, not victory. It means weakness, not power. But he says to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, actually. And then he has them look at their own constituency at the Corinthian church and how they're the, the living embodiment of this hierarchy flipping that is, is captured by the cross. Look at verse 26 of chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. That's not the kind of people that populated the Corinthian church. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And he says, that's the kind of message I brought to you. I didn't preach anything else but that. Chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. You weren't responding to this really eloquent speaker, you know, this lofty, elevated speech. I brought to you nothing, not a thing, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So that's the, the gospel to which they had responded to become Christians. For there to be a church at Corinth in the first place, and, um, but they seem to have forgotten that by the time they received 1 Corinthians. They were reverting to that self-absorbed way that is typical of our world. And that was going on in the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, and it was going on in the way that they were using the spiritual gifts that God had given the members of the church at Corinth in their assemblies. In their assemblies, they were not using these spiritual gifts to practice selfless love for one another, um, and in fact, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 13 is not, as we said last week, some standalone treatise on love. That's how we often read it that way, right? That's when we can take it out and put it on a cross stitch or whatever. Like it's just, just a context-free, standalone treatise. Here's what love looks like. It gives us a lot of info on love, for sure. But it's completely contextual. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12, rather than being this context-free kind of, of chapter, is bookended with chapter 12 and chapter 14. All of this is a long conversation on the proper use of spiritual gifts in the, in the assembly, in the public assembly. Right? Actually, back in chapter 11, he's talking about the public assembly because he talks about the Lord's Supper. And before that, he talks about women who were prophesying needed to have their heads covered. Well, prophecy, by definition, is public. You might pray privately. Prophecy means speaking out for God. That's what it is. All right? It isn't always miraculous in the Bible. It's just speaking for God. Um, prophets are often just enforcing the Torah in the Old Testament. But they're not doing it in a closet with themselves. That's the definition of the word. It has a public element. So 
really, we could back that up to chapter 11, but in terms of spiritual gifts, all of chapter 12, 13, and 14 are talking about that. And the heart of it, because they had forgotten it, in the use of their spiritual gifts, is cruciform, cross-shaped love. All right? That's discipleship 101. That's what Christianity is. We don't have Christianity um, by just picking and choosing the parts we like and, and then becoming you know, self-absorbed with it. It's got to be cross-shaped. It's got to follow the example in Jesus, of Jesus in giving up uh, ourselves. And thinking of our gifts, um, so, so just to, re- to give you some evidence this real quick, um, notice how in chapter 12, verse 1, I've got 12, 13, 14, just an excerpt from each, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be uninformed. So that's the topic. But then in chapter 13, you know, at the end of chapter 12, he says, um, but I show you a more excellent way. And then he starts going into what love is. I, he's still talking about spiritual gifts. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. All right. And then in chapter 14, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. So love and spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts and love are all inextricably connected in Paul's mind when he looks at the the assembly of the church, the public assembly. The problem is the Corinthians had forgotten that. They still got these spiritual gifts. They're using them, but not in a way that looks like the cross. It looks a little too self-absorbed and not selfless enough. And so that's why last week we wanted to talk about what love is. Today we want to plug it into its context of the use of gifts in the assembly. So our title today um, is uh, The More Excellent Way. I show you a still more excellent way. And what I want us to talk about for a few minutes this morning with, with two basic observations is, is how what the most excellent way is is basically a, a biblical perspective, a, a God's view on the use of, of, of our gifts in the setting of the church. All right? So a biblical perspective on the use of our gifts in the church. That's what this most excellent way is about in the context. Okay? And my question for us this morning is, are we subscribing to this still more excellent way? If so, I want to suggest two things that we have to appreciate. Two things that this more excellent way will understand, will appreciate, will aspire to. Maybe we haven't always done it like we should But we're aspiring to that. We're trying to follow this cross-shaped usage of gifts. And there's a couple of things fundamentally we've got to understand and grasp if we're going to do that. The first of which is the diversity of our gifts. The diversity of the gifts in the Corinthian church is one of the main things he's trying to get across. But any church of God's people is going to be given by God, by God's Spirit, a welter of different kinds of gifts. They're not all the same. There's a diversity associated with gifts. In other words, all Christians are divinely gifted. Or we might say in our usage of the, uh, our, our, our kind of jargon, we might say talented. We might say gifted. Usually we, use, we, start, we usually reserve gifted for somebody who's like really off the chart, right? 99th percentile. I don't think that's the point here. He talks about some of the lowly gifts that God says those are more, actually more important. Because again, it's part of that hierarchy flipping. But the point is, we all have different talents, different gifts that we bring, but that's the point. They are different. It doesn't make them less of a gift from God or more of a gift from God. There's just a diversity there. Some of these, obviously, and you may be thinking this right now, are very special 
uh, in the Corinthian church, very special miraculous gifts, right? It talks about uh, prophets, you know, the people given what apparently in 1 Corinthians context is a spontaneous utterance because he says in chapter 14, if somebody gets one of those and somebody else gets one, the first one should be quiet, should keep silent. So they sound like not somebody studying up a lesson, it sounds like a spontaneous miraculous utterance they're given, an oracle from God. Tongue speaking, meaning speaking a language without having learned it. This is miraculous, and some of them are just called miracles. So some of the things listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are what we would recognize as miraculous spiritual gifts. But here's the point. You ever wonder, why is all this in here? Well, one reason is because God still gifts us. That doesn't stop. He may not gift us in that same way, but gifts of the Spirit, divine gifts given to His people, were not limited even then to miraculous gifts. And you can see that right in the text here. So if we look at chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, look at some of these that we still would recognize today in our church. We have wisdom, utterances of wisdom. I think Paul Nelson, he may not agree, I think, I'd argue, I'd give you a long list, because I know, I've been with him a long time, got a big body of work in my opinion. He has uttered wisdom many times. Um, faith. Um, sometimes the faith of my own children blows my mind. I'll be all nervous and anxious, and you know, one of them will say to me, Daddy, you know, remember what you said when we were 10? I'm like, Where are they, who are they from? Her. <laughs> you know, um, whatever. I mean, faith is, is, is something we don't necessarily think of as miraculous, and yet it's obviously from God. Lots of scriptures tell us that faith is a gift from God. Um, knowledge. Teachers, we have great teachers in this, in this uh, church here. P helping, do you think of helping as always miraculous? Administration, I'm a horrible administrator. Some people are great at that. These are all gifts from God, from His Spirit. So this is not just talking about first century miraculous spiritual gifts. It's talking about all the kinds of things that God would imbue us with to do His work. Certainly some of those were different, they were special, and they were for that time. Romans 12, 5 through 8 would be a parallel text. Um, in fact, you can see it's by the same author, different church as the audience, but he, the exact same kind of language. So though we who are many are one body in Christ, that's what 1 Corinthians 12 will say, exactly that, and individually members one of another. Remember, 1 Corinthians 12 is going to make that exact analogy. You're a body with many different individual members. You all have different gifts. The eye shouldn't say to the foot, so on. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So this is a very parallel text, and even in Romans 12, you can see that while some of these appear to be miraculous, others not at all, really. Um, in our serving, if you're a person who's serving, that's a gift from God. Isn't every Christian supposed to serve? It's still a gift. If you're a person who's teaching or exhorting, he says, if you're the one who exhorts, if that's your gift, then do, use it in exhortation. If you're the one who contributes then do it generously. If you're the one who leads, do it with zeal. These are not things that we would say typically sound like anything miraculous necessarily, but they're all still gifted, uh, gifts coming from God. So um, there is a diversity in the kinds of gifts. There's also a diversity in, in the recipients of the gifts. I think this is the point being made in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Right at the top of that long section where Paul says, let me, let me give it to you this way. You're like a body, church at Corinth, and you have a lot of different individual body parts, but you're still all one thing. You don't all have the same function or gift or talent or role. There's a hand, there's an eye, there's a foot, but you're still a single body. Appreciate that. The diversity of parts or bodies or talents or gifts doesn't mean 
um, that those don't matter or don't count or aren't real. So look what he says here, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. The church of Christ is like the body of a human being. That's the analogy. For in one spirit, remember the spirit is what's gifting them in the chapter. These are spiritual gifts, gifts coming from God, from his spirit. Here it says, in one spirit, we, all Christians, were baptized into one body. There's a lot of ethnic and racial and national uh, diversity captured here by the phrase Jews or Greeks. That's really diverse, really different. Big divide there. But he says you're still one. And there's socioeconomic diversity. Slave or free. That's a huge, the experience of a slave is way different than the, uh, the experience of a free person in the ancient world. Just like the experience of a Jew is very different from the experience of a Greek. And yet he says we're all made to drink of that one spirit. So there's a diversity of gifts, there's a diversity in who has received the gifts. And one of Paul's points here, folks, is that we need to embrace this diversity of gifts. We shouldn't recoil at that, we should embrace it. Whatever kind of person, and whatever the kind of gift, we need to appreciate and use God's gifts. Slaves and free persons, pretty different. Both are part of the same body. One person's gift might seem lofty, and others might seem humble. But both are from God. I, I like it when, I love uh, the passage in James 1 that says, Be not deceived, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom can be no variation or shadow cast bearing, all that. Every good and perfect gift. If you can think of something in the universe, some physical thing, some emotional thing, some relational thing, some spiritual thing, Anything that can be called accurately good and perfect, who's it from ultimately? God, without exception. Every good and perfect gift. Well, that's the point here. All of these gifts, these talents that are given to the diversity of people in a diversity of ways in any given church are from the same author of every good and perfect gift. And So Paul is saying, I want you to embrace that. Now, I want you to notice, with, with a view to what we've been talking about in our class on gender roles, I want you to notice now that this diversity includes females as well as males. It's not gendered. In 1 Corinthians 12, there's nothing that genders it and says, I'm only talking to men right now. That's just not in the text. It's just talking to the church at Corinth. In any other chapter, we'd go, yeah, that's clearly the church at Corinth. When he says men, wants to say men or women, he says that. He does it in chapter 14 and other places. He doesn't do that in the, the just general list of gifts in chapter 12 and chapter 13. Um, and, and so I want to I really appreciate that point. Um, in fact, it says that he gives these gifts to everyone. A couple different ways. In chapter 12, uh, though there are varieties of gifts, it's the same spirit. There's a variety of service. It's the same Lord. There are varieties of activities. But it is, notice this, verse 6 of chapter 12, the same God who empowers them all, in whom? everyone. God empowers his gifts in every Christian to each Christian in the church at Corinth or any other place. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. All right? So every Christian, male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, or anything in between, is gifted by God and gifted by God's Spirit in some way. A lot of different ways. But there's a diversity of recipients and a diversity of gifts. So, 
I mean, the fact that all you got to do is go back to the previous chapter, chapter 11, and women are prophesying. They, they need to have their head covered in doing so, Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 5, I think it is. But you, one of the gifts he mentions all through chapter 12, 13, and 14 is prophecy. It's one of the biggies that they seem to gravitate toward, that one and tongue speaking. And he's sort of like bringing them back from their, their high horse a little bit, as we'll see in a few minutes. But women were doing that in this very letter, all right? Now, I want, what I want, one thing I want to do, um, well, first of all, I want to make sure that we understand uh, there's some caveats here. To be sure, uh, some specific uh, permutations of, of some of the gifts God gives may be limited to males. I understand that. You take uh, the, the, the apostles are talked about in chapter 12, verse 28. I have it grayed out here, but and, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and so on. Apostles... There's a couple of different ways that word is used. The basic meaning is just a sent person, one sent, usually for evangelism or to take a message for somebody, like an ambassador, an envoy, that kind of thing. Uh, a herald would be a good synonym for that. But we know that in the Bible there is a, a top tier, a special class of apostles called the Twelve, and they were all men. There's just no question about it. It's a matter of biblical record, right? On the other hand, there are other people called apostles several times in Scripture. Barnabas is called an apostle, wasn't one of the Twelve. Jesus is called an apostle, not one of the twelve. He's the one that the twelve serve. Uh, and there's a woman called an apostle. We talked about this in our gender class, and I realize some of you weren't there. I hope you've listened to all the classes online by now. I know I'm beating that horse to death. Kind of important, having a church conversation that we all are in on it. Um, but Romans 16, 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, a female name, by my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. Is he saying there was a 13th apostle that we didn't know about who was a woman? No. He's saying that this is one of several, no doubt, people who were sent out with the message. She's involved in some level, on some level in church planting or evangelism or something like that. That's what the word apostles mean. And she was an actually well-known one. Like She stood out among them, had done really good work. And, she, and Paul says she was actually converted before I was. All right? So that's one woman. You could think maybe of Mary Magdalene in this, uh, in this way. She functioned, at least, in the same way. I don't know if she's called an apostle. But she's the first human being to go out with the message of the resurrected Jesus. When the, apostle, when the disciples, they're not called apostles yet, but when the, when the disciples of Jesus, the twelve, have scattered in fear, remember, they're hiding. That's what the men are doing. Mary Magdalene is, is commissioned by Jesus, or the angel, to go, or I can't remember if it was Jesus or the angel, one of them says, go tell the others, and she does that. She's, she's being sent with a message about Jesus, the resurrected world. That's essentially what the meaning of the word apostle is, aside from the, the higher tier of you know, organizers of the first century in church and all that. That's why a woman can be called an apostle here without a contradiction. Anyway, um, now, I, I want you to understand, I, I, I realize this, and if you've been in those classes, those nine classes we had on gender, this would be abundantly clear to you. There are specific texts, two of them, 1 Corinthians 14.34, 1 Timothy 2.12, that talk of limits on women. And those have to come into play on this. Here's my point, though. Rather than reading each of those verses in ice, this is what we often do. We get to the, let's talk about gender in the church. And what we do is we go to those two sort of limit texts, two verses in the Bible. We get those, we think we know what they mean, even though in their context, as we've already seen, I think, in this church, they're pretty complicated. For instance, 1 Timothy 
women aren't to teach or have authority over men. The next verse right above it says what? Anybody remember? Don't have fancy hairstyles, expensive clothing, gold jewelry, pearls. Anybody wearing that right now? Well, that's cultural. See, we're already doing cultural work with that passage. No, nobody's not. Um, I have a funny story of a preacher friend down in mine in Tampa. I'll tell you this real quick and we'll move on. I'm risking going real long, but I think today I, I'm going to have to go however long ago. You got to go, you got to go. This is important. <laughs> it's super important today. Um, we'll still all eat together at the potluck later. Uh, anyway, th this friend of mine in Tampa who's a preacher, when he was a 10th grade, I've told three or four of you this story. It's just funny to me. It's, it's, it's very telling and, and uh, kind of a microcosm of, of some of the problems we're trying to understand a scripture which was written 2,000 years ago to a different historical situation and trying to be faithful to it but understand what it means. How do we translate that? So this, this guy, he's a young guy, young preacher. When he was a 10th or 11th grader in high school, he was in the town where he grew up. He's going to some, some uh, a Church of Christ there. I don't know that for sure which one, but um, I think I do, but I don't know. I'm not, it doesn't matter. And he's got this friend at school, like we often did. And, and, and if you grew up in the South, you know, a whole lot of people believe in the Bible. People have, what kid who grew up in the South didn't have Bible arguments with their friend? A million times. I did that all the time. You're probably thinking right now, what a nerd. More than we even thought. But they did that. And, and he said this girl that he talked to all the time, who was a good friend of his, really knew the Bible well. And she went to some other kind of church. And, and he said she really knew the Bible better than I did, and I could tell. But I, I just felt compelled to invite her to church. She was always inviting her, won't you come to church with me? Please come to church with me. Please come to church with me. And she always said no, no, no. So one day he said, why won't you come to church with me? And she said, because you go to a church where the, they, they, don't, they don't obey 1 Timothy 2. The women at your church wear expensive clothing. They have their hair. They, have, they go to a hairstylist and get their hair done up. And they wear gold jewelry and pearls, and 1 Timothy says not to do that. The girl went to a church that had a female pastor. Is that weird to anybody? I mean, from, depending on the circles you're from, i.e. mine, I'm like, what? How? But she was going, how? You see my point? That's, that's not even like just the clearest passage in the world. Let's at first of all acknowledge that. And that to talk about it as, as grown men and women and to really get in the details is, is an honorable thing to do. We didn't make it difficult. And I want to tell you, as I've been praying over the last few weeks, I've been praying to God that prayer. Lord, I didn't write 1 Timothy 2. You gave us that. I'm having trouble here, and I've consulted 35 Greek scholars and, you know, whatever. I'm not the first one in the last two millennia. We're not the first people to talk about this. So that's one thing. Now, 1 Corinthians 14 says women keep silent in the churches, but back in chapter 11, he's talking about women prophesying. So these are not internally super clear. But here's my larger point right now. Yes, we have to honor whatever we believe those two limits mean. But rather than just reading those two verses in isolation, we need to plug them into the context of the overall story of the Bible. That's not the only thing the Bible says about women and God using women. Not even close. And I think sometimes the problem is we start with the two verses that limit. We get our takeaway, what we think we've got understood, got it down pat. And then we use those as lenses to read the whole rest of the Bible. Instead of reading the whole Bible, the story, and then coming to those two verses and say, now what might these mean? It's kind of backwards. You see that? In terms of weight, it's just backwards. In terms of number of instances. 
So I want to really quickly run through a list. This is not an exhaustive list. It's a sample of God's gifting and using women throughout the Bible. Um, we didn't really talk about this as much. Can't talk about everything in nine weeks, but we talked about a lot of it. Now, just real quick, and, and again, this isn't exhaustive. A sampling would include Miriam, Micah 6, 4. Miriam is, is, happens way earlier. She lives way earlier in the history of the Old Testament. But she's, remember, with Moses and Aaron, doing some pretty important things. Uh, has a song she sings. She's in a leadership position. Uh, in Micah 6, 4, uh, think of all the heroes of faith in the Old Testament. Right? All the people that could have been listed. And talking about the history of Israel Here's what Micah says. I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you three people, Moses and Aaron and Miriam, a woman. All right? Deborah is called a prophetess in Judges 4. She's a person who's speaking utterances publicly for God. She's also a judge. There's a New, a New Testament scholar called, uh, called Scott McKnight that when he talks about Deborah, says basically she was the president, the pope, and Rambo all rolled into one. <laughs> because think about what judges did. Judges were military leaders in the book of Judges. She's out leading like a general. She's also the spiritual leader. The problem of judges is that cycle of morality and immorality, right? They go off and, and the judge has to draw them back, theoretically, to God's way. They've, they've, they've diverged from God's path. So she's a spiritual leader. And she's also a political leader. They decided cases and things like that and were to bring wisdom. A judge is all those things. That's Deborah. That's not something I did or some liberal scholar did. That's in the Bible. It's just as in the Bible as 1 Timothy 2 is. So it, it at least has got to be in the conversation. We can't just ignore it or write it off because we've got this verse over here. Um, Huldah. Do you remember in 2 Kings 22, they find that they're, they're cleaning out the temple. Israel has, has really become kind of apostate. They've, they've left behind the Torah and the ways of God. And Josiah is leading a little reform of, 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 of morality, trying to take people back to the way of, of, of Yahweh. And they're cleaning out the temple. They're repairing the temple. And somebody finds a scroll. And they come to him. They say, we found a book, a scroll, a piece of the Torah. And Josiah, you know, tears his clothes in mourning because it sounds scary. Like, the, it's, who knows what part of it was, but maybe it's the blessings and cursings. And they, he's like, ooh, that's going to... So they actually, this is, in these days, the prophets that would have been available to Josiah are Zephaniah and Jeremiah. You ever heard of Jeremiah? He's a gigantic book in the Old Testament. That's not the prophet that Josiah says go consult. They consult Huldah, a woman prophetess, who basically verifies that yes, that is the law, and says this is what this is going to mean. She interprets it for them. That, that's in there, Right? I oh, mean, we got to go fast here. Uh, we're, I didn't get up here, though, till like 1120 or something. Charlie, no, Charlie, Charlie, where are you? Great. I, lo I love your Lord for talk. In fact, I thought of several tie-ins, but we're not going to do that. No, I don't, I'm not complaining if you're not. Anna, New Testament. We're, just fast, we're skipping Ruth and Esther and people like that. Anna, a prophetess in Luke 2, speaking of God publicly, who did not depart from the temple. We read right over that. Do you know how much, how exclusively male the temple was? The temple is completely a male scene. And she's at the temple regularly. And she also is one of the first people to pronounce that the baby Jesus is actually the redemption of Israel. And God gave that role to Simeon and Anna. 
there in, in Luke chapter 2. Peter's Pentecost sermon. The same one that says, repent and be baptized. Right? Says, quoting Joel 2, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares. They're entering the last days here. This has been called the first gospel sermon, right? In the last days, quoting Joel, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your, your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, I will pour out my spirit. That's part of the new era, he says, in some sense. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians already. Women were prophesying, needed to have her head covered. There's a difference in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians, but she's prophesying. Women are prophesying there, which is just what this says, which means uh, this makes that not that weird (laughs) because that's exactly what uh, the prophecy that Peter says on Pentecost is is being fulfilled, at least the, the, the fulfillment is being inaugurated there on the day of Pentecost. It includes prophesying. And then Philip's four daughters. He has four virgin daughters who we just read in passing in Acts 21.8, prophesied. Not, this is beginning to not look so weird and like an exception. It's kind of a pattern on some level. Paul's female workers in the gospel. Several, I don't even have to, I don't even put them up here because several times in his clothing, closing remarks in his letters, he'll refer sometimes by name, sometimes just generically to women as well as men who were his, quote, fellow workers, or your version may say, co-workers in the gospel. This literally means a co-worker in evangelism, gospel, the good news. And so presumably, these are people, I'm not saying there's people standing up at a pulpit or something like that, but they're taking the gospel to places. They're teaching. They're sitting down with people. They're talking to people in a public square. These are women and men who he identifies as workers in the planting of of, of churches. All right? I mean, that's what it would mean if we were talking about men. So it should mean the same thing when he says fellow workers in the gospel with women. Priscilla and Aquila. Interesting to me that Priscilla's listed first. We didn't even talk about that. Probably not a throwaway fact because almost always men are listed first in this patriarchal world that they lived in. But the, 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 gospel, the, the, the New Testament always says Priscilla and Aquila. And they both together taught Apollos. So it's a, a woman-man teaching team, teaching a, not only a, a Christian man, but a man who was a scholar. He was mighty in Scripture and very eloquent. We learn uh, in, in Acts 18 as well. And then Phoebe, is, as we talked about in the class, is called a deaconess of the church at Sinclair. And what's something we didn't talk about, she was also called a patron, or your version may say benefactor. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor or patron, some versions say, of many people, including me. A lot of folks think she was a wealthy woman who, who funded the church there, maybe, maybe housed in her, in her uh, uh, home. And she is the one probably, uh, you can look up a lot of different commentators are mostly going to say this, she's probably the one taking the letter of Romans to the Romans. That's why he's commending her. Paul does that routinely. So here's a woman bringing a letter, which usually involved reading it. The person who brought the letter, remember, this is not a literate society like ours. We often think this is to be read. It was often oral, A-U-R-A-L. It's assuming, in fact, one of the New Testament epistles says, when this is read in your hearing. That was the pattern. So probably Phoebe is the person being sent, commended, receiver. She's going to bring the letter, read it, and then go back. But he says in passing she was a deacon and a patron. All right, we can go on and on and on and on. When we sing congregationally, as I said before several times, women are among those who are speaking to men in song, hymn, spiritual song. Straight quote. 
or teaching and admonishing. Colossians 3.16, likely a parallel. It's parallel in every other way. Now, this is just an overview. It's a, it's a, I started to say quick overview, not so quick overview. And I, why am I doing this? To remind us that we need to exercise some care when talking about limiting God's use of women in ways that He's gifted them. Because there's a long pattern of God doing that. Now, we also have to say women were never priests in the Old Testament. Not once. Women were not in that first tier of apostles that established a church. Not a single one. Women are not elders in 1 Timothy 3 that I've known ever once in the Bible. I know churches do that, but in the Bible, no. That's not a throwaway fact, right? On the other hand, that does not negate that partial list we just talked about. God has publicly used women in certain ways, biblically, throughout His whole interaction with humanity and His people. And that's Bible we're talking about. Every one of those was a quote, pretty much. Um, and so, yes, 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, they're Scripture too. We're not, nobody's talking about getting rid of those, and that's why we spent most of our nine weeks on them. But we, when we talk about the need to use our gifts, it doesn't give us the right to violate scriptural limitations, certainly. But the question is, let's make sure our interpretation of those two passages honors the other things said in the Bible, not only in their own immediate context, but in the whole rest of the context of the Bible. All right? That's the point I'm making. Now, some of you right now are like, way to go. The ones who just said way to go aren't going to like this point. This is a yin-yang sermon. That's why I left it with two points. I had three, I took one of them out. Not only was it going to be eternal, but I wanted it to be like, I wanted to leave you with attention. Because I think that's what the Bible's doing here. Not only do we need to talk about the diversity of our gifts, we've got to talk about the purpose of our gifts. This point won't take as long, but it's every bit as important. I think we get this one more. That's why I'm spending less time on it. I think we do often forget the ways God has used women, gifted women, and used them. So I wanted to kind of remind us of that. This one, I think, is the one we're going to gravitate toward more, more usually in our, in our heritage. But here's the danger. There's a very real danger that when we start talking about not limiting the use of gifts where God hasn't, and using people, if God's used women, we need to talk about how we can use them. When we start down that path, I'm not making a slippery slope argument. I'm just saying that what often gets imported into the discussion is something that is very foreign to the text of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And it's foreign, really, to the Bible. And that is a kind of modern Western logic or modern Western notions of individual rights and uh, equality, political egalitarianism, and the language of self-actualization and self-fulfillment and finding yourself. A lot of that is, in, is very modern much more individualistic than anything in the Bible or anything before about 500 years ago, actually, before the Renaissance. Much more collectivist, communal kind of thinking. And the Bible drinks deeply of those communitarian waters. So what I want us to do is notice that the purpose of all of our God-given gifts is love. Self-sacrificing, cruciform, cross-shaped, die to self, for the good of other people, love. All right? What's the purpose in the context of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 behind God's giving us gifts? What's the purpose? We talked about the diversity and how we need to be alert to the fact that God may be doing things we're not used to. 
maybe a little different than your tradition or my tradition, we also got to talk about the purpose. A half-truth, no truth at all, right? What are the, what's the purpose of God given? Let's look at the, the, uh, the text here. So, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit, spiritual gift. Why? For the common good. Keeping on going real quick here. The one who prophesies, 1 Corinthians 14 now, verse 3, speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. It's not about you getting to prophesy. He never ever once says that. I just really feel like I should be allowed to prophesy. I feel that gift. Well, that's fine, but that's a different logic than 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Find it for me. Let's talk afterwards. Every single time, in fact, redundantly, he is like, this is not about you. It's about your brothers and sisters. You're building up the church. Why are we doing these things? Prophecy, tongues, all these, so that the church may build up, be built up. Chapter 14, verse 5. Continuing along, chapter 14, verse 12. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel, but in what? Building up the church. Verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. You bring all these things that God has gifted you with. Let all things be done for the building, uh, for, for building up, for edification, you may read in your version. Okay? So my point is this. Whether it's for men, this applies to men just like women. And there's been times before in the life of this church where I'm like, that sounds a little bit like you. I want to do this. I'm not feeling used. Can all say, it can mean I have this gift and you're squelching me artificially with no biblical reason. It can mean that. That's kind of what the first point was about. It can also mean I, I kind of want to be the center of attention a little bit. I want to be, you know, more, I want to be valued. And I, I get that's a fine line. Uh, we, you know, I'm not saying self-esteem and things like that don't matter. But you get my point. Some of that has gone to seed in the modern Western consciousness. And we have drunk deeply of that and brought it into the church. And we, we, we sort of overlay that on this discussion here. Well, he reminds us over and over and over again, it's not about you feeling self-actualized. It's not about you feeling self-fulfilled. It's not about you exercising your rights. The language of rights in the modern sense, you know, of, of England and France and the U.S. since about the 18th century to now, epitomizing the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution here, that language is foreign to the New Testament. Your, your freedom is to become a slave of Christ. It talks about freedom, but it's always that. It's freedom, uh, not freedom from, it's freedom to to become what you really were designed to be, and that is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's the most liberating thing you'll ever do, actually. All right? So, how fulfilling? I mean, just think about Jesus. If he's the example here, if it's cruciform love, how fulfilling was the cross for Jesus? How much were Jesus' rights and privileges respected? You think Jesus got to use all his gifts? Well, I think he did, but one of his gifts was to give himself up. Isn't that his biggest gift? to be erased from the Roman perspective. Put on a cross, which was their statement of saying, you lose. You are nothing. We won't even dignify you with a better form of execution. We're going to give you crucifixion, the death of revolutionaries and slaves and thieves and the people that they regarded as down on the bottom of their society. And that turns out to be the biggest gift any of us, that's our lifeblood, that's our hope, the cross. Look at Jesus' trial. <coughs> Excuse me. In his trial, it's a travesty of justice. Talk about somebody's rights being, 
not taken care of. His crucifixion, the greatest injustice that ever happened, arguably. So we've got to keep that in mind as well. Now, some implications real quick, and then we'll stop. <clears throat> implications of using gifts in a way that manifests cross-shape or cruciform love. First of all, no divisions. You hear me? No divisions ever. Period. It's like when we got married. Shree and I had a couple fights, a couple arguments, one or two this month. <laughs> well, we, you know, we're like anybody else. We're real people. And there's one thing somebody told us, I don't remember who, that we've said to each other since like our, our honeymoon on. Not that it came up on the honeymoon, but... And that is, we will never use the D word, ever. I mean, we didn't mean if one of us were to cheat on the other. Of course, the Bible allows for, for that sort of thing. But aside from that, we will never, divorce is not a thing we're going to bring out as an option to sort of browbeat the other, you know, to manipulate behavior. That, there, there's a known fact going into the argument or disagreement that we're solid no matter whatever we talk about on this. That's not going anywhere. Church should be just like that. Anybody here not believe Jesus is the Son of God raised from the dead who's a member of this church? Anybody here not believe the Word is the infallible, the Bible is the infallible Word of God? No. We're talking about something that really, in the scheme of things, is a little bit more on the edges. And Satan wants that to cause these tensions. I, I don't really feel any right now other than disagreements over what to do a little bit. I don't feel any like any of my brothers or sisters are going anywhere. I'm not. But that's the point. If, the, if we're talking about getting to use my gifts, and, and the logic of that takes us to a point where we're thinking about destroying the very body those gifts are meant to serve, then shame on us. We've misread what our giftedness is about. One of the most emphasized points in 1 Corinthians written to a church which is on the brink of division, more than any church in the New Testament, right, is do not divide. Do not divide. 1 Corinthians 1 starts off right out of the gate with this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, that all of you agree there be no divisions among you. You all be united, the same mind, same judgment. He says, I've heard from the, the people of Chloe that there's quarreling among you. What I mean, verse 12, is that one of you says, I follow Paul, another I have Apollos, another I have Cephas, another I have Christ. And then he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, it's all about Jesus. How can you be divided and claim to be a church of Jesus when unity is the last thing he said? One of the last things he said on his last night on earth was to pray for the unity of the disciples so that the world might believe the gospel. Let's gift the world a unified church so it can see the truth. And Paul says over in chapter 3, when one of you says, I follow Paul, read, read your own view in here. I think this about gender roles. Read that in here every time. See, how, see what it does for your thinking. I follow Paul, or I think X. I follow Apollos, I think Y. He says, when you're doing that, aren't you merely human if it's taking you to a point of, of, of pulling away from each other? He says, you're just being human. That's human logic. That's not divine logic. What is Apollos? What is Paul? They're just servants through whom you believed. And as the Lord assigned to each, so he's, he's applying the giftedness logic to these two men. I planted, Paul writes, Apollos watered, but it's God who gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And look at verse 16 of chapter 3. 
Here's an ominous warning to anybody who would even chip away at the church of the Lord in terms of divisiveness. Do you not know that you, plural, ye, y'all, are God's temple and that God's spirit lives, dwells, abides in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. Again, the you there in both cases is plural. That's what he says. Third implication. Wait. The second, second implication. Oh, I, I forgot to I wanted to say this. When we do disagree about something, we're going to do that. Shree and I disagree on the Bible. Any other two people in here disagree with their wife or spouse on the Bible ever? If you don't ever, I wonder if you're talking personally. I, I just I want to know your secret. As a church, we can't not talk about stuff that's in the Bible. That's the thing. We don't have that option. Right? We're not rocking the boat. We're talking about something that's in the Bible. We, put, we didn't put it in there. It's not rocking the boat. Maybe rocking your boat. Right? It's rocking mine a little bit. I, I, I guarantee you I'm up there with any of y'all for praying in the last 30 days. But not really. God's got this. It's His church. He's got it. And I feel confident about my, 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 the love of my brothers and sisters here. Completely. That even doesn't even need to be said. But anyway... When we do disagree about something in the Bible, here's the thing we've got, to re, we, we've got to, an implication here. We've got to resist the, impu, the, the impulse to reduce a brother or sister to merely an issue or a position. Do you follow me? I'm looking around here. These are flesh and blood human beings. So we don't all agree on everything, whether it's this question we've been talking about or something else. But when I'm disagreeing with you, or you're disagreeing with me, you and I aren't just disembodied abstractions, like little doctrinal issues or positions to be manipulated or lined up or disagreed with or whatever. We are people, flesh and blood human beings, who have fears and hopes and relationships and anxieties. And, and we need, that's, that's how the gospel works, it's in real people. It's like a body. It has real parts. You don't have the idea of a hand hanging on the end of your arm. You've got a hand. Right? It's not the idea of an elbow. It's not the doctrinal position of X. It's an elbow. So I think there should be a whole lot of patience and love and empathy when we disagree with each other. It's a brother I'm disagreeing with or a sister. Think of your own family. You know, you're sitting around the table. You've got adolescent children and teenage children, and they're just losing their mind, and you're losing your mind. Anybody been there? You, you, you can just not talk about all the elephants in the room. That's one option. It's not going to work. In fact, you're asking for it. Or you can talk about hard things that are part of life around a table. But I guarantee you one thing you're not going to do if you have a functional as opposed to a dysfunctional family, you're not going to go, what's wrong with you for having those feelings? And just go off, and you're out of the family because you had that temptation or... You made that mistake. Who does that? It's your family member. All right? And thirdly, let's don't... If gifts are to be used in cruciform love for the sake of the church, let's be careful about this minimizing service that is of a lower profile kind. Let's say it's less public. It's more lowly. Less press-getting. Less noticeable. Less visible. Be careful 
that we don't minimize the value in God's hands of the little thing, of the quiet act, of the non-visible, lowly act of service. Isn't that the point of cruciformity? You're willing to give yourself up to sort of be erased for others, trusting that in God's hands it won't, look, it won't be an erasure long term. Because what's important has been inverted. This is why he says this stuff about what seems like the more important part of the body, God has made lower. And what looks like the lowly part, God has put more greater, you know, greater honor on. I'm not going to read the whole thing because we're out of time. But that, that whole what's valuable is a gift and what's invaluable, what's important, what's not important, that's part of the hierarchy of cruciformity. So don't be so quick to go, I'm not using my gift if it's not in a public way. Or if it's not in a, a, a sort of big way or whatever. Don't, you know, quietly mowing someone's yard or taking someone a meal or just sitting with someone in their, in their heartache and brokenness or their trial, you cannot put too high a value on that. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. These take time in, 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 in sitting with people. I'm not saying that, that this proves we shouldn't have the other conversation. It doesn't erase my whole first point. I'm just saying there's another ditch on the other side. And that's really kind of the overall point here. There's some tension here. you got two imperatives, basically. Chapter 12, verse 31 captures one of them. I'm sorry, chapter, uh, chapter 12, 31 gives us our title. I'll show you, uh, show you a still more excellent way. Verse 1 of chapter 14 captures both of these imperatives, both of these commands. The tension between two things we have to respect as a church. First of all, pursue love. Cruciform, selfless cross-shaped, other-oriented love. That's what Paul means by love. Secondly, though, desire the spiritual gifts. He neither says, gifts are yours to use how you want. Who cares? You just need to feel important. He doesn't say that. He says the opposite. But he also doesn't say, you know, love's all that matters. Why are you even asking to get to do something like that? Who says that to men? Why do you ask to be a deacon? Why is he so uppity? I mean, you don't do that. You've already kind of circularly um, assumed something when you do that, make that move. But it is about love, but it's also about spiritual gifts. So there's two things. We must respect both of these imperatives. Or to put it more negatively, there's two ditches we can fall into, not just one. If you like slippery slope logic, there's two slippery slopes. Where's this going? Well, where's not doing anything with, for women going? We can talk about that more tonight. For one thing, it may not be going where the Bible went all the way. On the other hand, we've seen, well, the other hand. So, number one, we mustn't forget that God does gift women because He gifts all Christians. So as we discuss what Scripture does and does not allow for female Christians, we need to be sure we're not limiting women, and this is my point, in ways that have more to do with our tradition than God's Word. On the other hand... This is the other side. Our gifts, every single one of them, men or women, whatever they are, are not about us per se. They're about selfless, other-oriented, sacrificial, self-sacrificing, cruciform love. God gives them ultimately for the upbuilding of His body. And by the way, not just during the fraction of the week that we're assembled here. That's another thing. We've talked about all this about the assembly. That's about 2% of what the New Testament is talking about. Right? 
It is. I mean, there's a way, most of the New Testament is talking about what we do in holiness and love out in, in the community. And finally, all of this flows from God. There are a variety of activities, 1 Corinthians 12, 6, but it is the same God who empowers them all. And this is a God who, Paul says, gave himself up. Who is more gifted in all the universe than God? Duh. And Paul says that this God emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, a slave, dying the death of an outcast. And he calls each of us to have this mind which was in Christ Jesus so that you look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others. And this brings us all the way back to our opening verse. And that is love. Everybody looking at this? Love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Okay, let's have a congregational meeting tonight. Right? I, I wanted to frame this because a lot of stuff we're talking about is in this cha these chapters. And it's perfect because it's gifts. Use them, seek them, desire them earnestly. But they're for love. And God gets to define it all. All right, thank you so much. I love y'all. I love this church. I love us having real conversations about real things, even when they're difficult. But if we keep love in, in front of us, it's not going to be that difficult because we're going to move together as one body, okay? Because we love each other. Amen? Amen. Thank you all for letting me go so long. This is the worst, most egregious of many uh, infractions in my preaching career by far. Um, yeah, I know. It was an hour. Got it. She's going to say, you didn't say. Um, she keeps me straight. She's y'all's best friend, by the way. You just don't know. All right, um, let's stand and sing God is love.